0: Alright, like I said, we're going to continue on the Gospel of John. And, and uh, if you're here last week or if you've been reading along, um, can you imagine how the disciples felt after last week, after all the bad news that they had just gotten? So let's recap all the news that the disciples had gotten, really, in and just this last evening. Jesus just told them that he was going away. He had previously told them that he was going to die in John 12 32. He had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. He just told Peter that he would deny him three times. And in Matthew, if you read this account in the the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that during the supper that he said that all would fall away. Can you imagine? You've been walking with the Lord. You're expecting victory and you get all this news. Could you imagine how they felt? That much b- bad news in such a short amount of time is, is bound to weigh heavy on your heart, right? It's bound to weigh heavy on, and the disciples had to really uh, beginning to, to, to feel that weight. I mean, you know they were in need of some encouragement, and that's the good news is today, as we start in chapter 14, you're going to see Jesus start to begin to give them that encouragement, you see, he encourages them to believe in him and believe in the Father, and that, that you know, the reason he's leaving is because he's going to prepare a place for them, and that he would be back for them. You see, all the bad things that Jesus described would happen, that they were going to happen. But the good news is, is it wasn't the end, amen? Amen. amen. So let's start, John 14, 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. So as we just discussed, in the midst of all of this bad news, it's just like, have you ever gotten so much bad news where it's like, can, will this just stop? Like one bad thing happens, you're like, that's okay, we'll get through it. And then it happens, something else happens, and you're like, all right, we'll still get through it. But after a while, you just start getting beat down, and you're like, God, is this ever going to stop? How am I going to get through this? And the disciples are getting that right now, and Jesus can see that their hearts are troubled. So he says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled, he begins to encourage them. And he continues to encourage them to trust God and to trust in himself. And, you know, sometimes when you, when you read this stuff, you might think Jesus is just, you know, um, um, you know, compassionately saying these things. Like, don't worry, guys. Just believe in me and believe in God. No, this is a command. This, this is not just a good idea. This is a command to believe in God and believe in him. You see, the the next few days are going to be rough. You know, we have the hindsight of knowing what's about to happen. We know the next few days are going to be rough for the disciples. And, and, and this is to encourage them so that they can make it through those times. And I think this is some of the best advice that we could ever internalize ourselves as well. Because there's going to be times that you're going to go through some stuff. Matter of fact, you might be going through some stuff right now. Or you might have, have had stuff in the past and you know that the only way to get through it is to put your trust in God. Sometimes things aren't going to be great, but this is the best advice you can get, that you can follow, is to continue to trust in God and to trust in Jesus. Because if our hope were wrapped up and only in the things that we were going through, our hope were wrapped up in, in only the now, then we would just be left in complete despair with, with nowhere to turn. I have felt at times in my life that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. I have felt times in my life where I'm wondering, how am I going to get through this? And if there was no God, I don't understand how people do. To be honest with you, for those who don't put their trust in God, I don't know how they get through life. But the thing is, God has promised us all so much. And as a result, that if we'll trust him, if we'll believe in him, then our joy should remain strong in spite of our circumstances. Our joy isn't isn't touched because we know in whom we trust and whom we believe. No matter how bad it gets, we understand that he is the one that makes us strong. We understand that he is our joy, he is our strength, that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. When we can put our hope in God, then we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We have hope. But even more than that, we have surety. Because God is faithful, amen? amen. And then he goes on in verse 2, "...in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." So he continues to encourage disciples, trust me, trust God, and know that my Father's house has many rooms. You may have heard this in other translations, translated as mansions. Actually, I was looking through all my translations, and the only one that does it is the King James Version, and the New King James Version. And there's actually a little note next to it if you read that. There'll probably be a little note that says, this actually just means dwellings. You see, the, the word here doesn't actually translate to mansion. It simply translates to like a room or a dwelling or a place to abide. And uh, unfortunately, because of this translation translation in the New King James Version, the King James Version, probably people have kind of created this skewed image of what heaven is going to look like. Like it's going to uh, look like something you see on cribs or something, which you see the... the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, the celebrities are living in. But Jesus isn't trying to describe some grand manner that everyone's going to be living in. He's just trying to encourage them that, listen, I'm going, but there's room for you. That's the point of this encouragement is that there's room for you. There is plenty of space. I like how the New Living... Translation translates it I go back and forth with the new living translation It's uh, In some ways I love it it's, a great, it's great to read And sometimes I think they take too much liberty In their uh, uh, Interpretation for you um, But I do like the way they wrote this It says in verse 2 here There is more than enough room In my father's home So instead of in my father's house there are many rooms There's more than enough room in my father's home That's good news Because I want to live there someday <laughs> I'm glad there's going to be room, amen? And then he reminds him, he says, listen, haven't I already told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? See, that they haven't put two and two together, that he has to, to die and go and, and, and become sin for them and, and, and become the ultimate sacrifice so that the place is prepared. But he says, haven't I told you that I've gone to prepare a place for you? And if I've gone to prepare a place for you, then I will come again and I will take you with me. He encourages them that he's going to return for them. He's not going to leave them there. And, and, and almost all scholars agree that what Jesus is talking about is not his resurrection. Um, but it's actually when he, his second coming, when Christ comes again and the entire church is gathered together and we're all resurrected in new bodies, then we are going to where he is at. And it's not just true for the disciples. He's, this is for all of us, all of us that have placed our trust in Jesus. Be encouraged. There's more than enough room for you. When I was in, in Africa, one of the uh, it was before I was even ordained as a pastor. Before we started the church, I went with um, um, a group of guys from the Tucson Church, Living Hope Family Church in Tucson, and we went to Africa and we did a a pastors conference. And it's actually an interesting thing because we weren't uh, sharing the gospel with others. We were actually ministering to, to pastors because what happens a lot of times there is, is missionaries will go over there and, and they'll go into a town, they'll spread the gospel, and they'll grab somebody and, and hand them a Bible, smack them on the butt and say, you're a pastor now. And they have no training. They have no understanding. They've only been ministered to for a few weeks. So what we did is we created a, a pastor's conference. All of these pastors could come in and we could train them, that we could teach them, and uh, It was actually an amazing time, but there was this one lady who was actually pastoring a church in her village, and the reason why she was pastoring is that her husband, who was pastoring in this little village, he had died, and there was nobody else, so she took it over. She continued to minister the gospel, and she's there, and we're preaching to them, and towards the end of the the conference, it was like four days or so, four or five days, she just falls on the ground sobbing, crying out, there's room for me. There's room for me. You see, she didn't know that there was room for her before then. I don't know about you, but that's just amazing, amazing news. There's room for me, and there's room for each and every one of you, amen? That's true for all of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, he says, and you know the way to where I am going. You see, the disciples had already been told how to get to heaven. Jesus had been teaching them for several years now. And he already had declared who he was over and over again. And you're going to see in the next verse that uh, they actually did not (laughs) know this. But uh, it's interesting to me because they should have understood. They had been walking under Jesus this whole time. They should have understood. And then every time I think that in my head, I go, wait a minute. I got to be real careful at pointing the finger at these guys because We have so much more knowledge and revelation than these guys did. We have the entire New Testament. We have the the benefit of hindsight of what they're about to go through. We have all of this, and how many of us still don't get it? But just as we've seen over and over in this chapter, Jesus is misunderstood. So in verse five, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. (laughs) Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this is Thomas that we all know and love. This is doubting Thomas, right? He's the one that uh, uh, said that he wouldn't believe until he could see the, the, the wounds in Jesus' hands and he could touch the scar on his side. And, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately for him, He's the one that voiced the opinion. Because the truth is, is, it just wasn't him. Every disciple has the same question. But he's the one that gets to be recorded for all eternity as doing so because he is the one that spoke up. You know, Pastor Wayne, how do you know that all the other disciples had this question? Well, I, I know that Peter, who we know is, is, was a leader of the, of the apostles, in John 13, 36, just the, the chapter 4 says, uh, in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So he already had asked a similar question. They, they weren't 100% putting it all together. But Thomas's logic is sound. If, you're not, if you haven't put it together, you don't know where Jesus is, Jesus, how do we know how to get to where you're going if we're not even 100% sure where you're going? If they didn't know who Jesus, where he was going, how could they know the way? Because I don't know about you guys, but if I if I need to know the way to get somewhere, I at least need to know the destination. I at least need to know the end point. And, and, and unfortunately they they had just missed it. They had still missed it. And like I said, be careful before you point the fingers. We can, we can point out the fact, but try not to get too high and mighty about it because we miss stuff all the time. Amen. So once again, Jesus is about to demonstrate his patience in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So instead of getting upset at them or telling them that they should know, instead of going, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, instead, <laughs> Jesus, instead, Jesus instead uses this as a teaching moment to clarify any doubts or misconceptions who knows, maybe the entire reason Jesus made that statement a second ago in the first place was just so that they would have the opportunity to express these doubts and these misunderstandings so that Jesus could ensure he had the opportunity to continue teaching because, I mean, you know, this is, this is a profound statement. This is one that we need to understand. So Jesus answers Thomas and he says, I am the way. Jesus, how do we know the way? He's like, no, you already know the way because I am the way. And this is another one of those I am statements that that, that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. I think there's six of them where he's he's, he's quite clearly demonstrating to them that he is deity. He's he's answering the same way way God says when, when Moses asked God, what is your name? He said, I am. Also by telling him this way when he says, I am the way, he's also making it clear to them that he's not talking about a physical location a physical destination while they walk on this earth. The destination is a person. It's the Father. He is the way to the Father. The Life Application New Testament Commentary says it like this, and I liked it. He said, Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth or reality of all God's promises, and Jesus is the life as he joins his divine life to ours, both now and eternally. You see, Jesus is the only way to the Father. That's what he says here. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is contrary to what many would like to try to get you to believe today with their fancy bumper stickers like coexist. The reality is that there's not multiple paths to heaven. There are not multiple religions that all lead to the same destination. There is only one way to the Father, and it is Jesus. And there are so many that would argue this can't be possible. It's too restrictive. Or what about all the other religions? They think it's egotistical for us to think that that we think that we're right. And this has always reminded me of like, can you imagine somebody being on like the fourth floor of an apartment building, the whole building's on fire, the stairway's on fire, all the other windows except for one window is on fire. And there's a fireman that's coming up on a ladder and he opens a window and he says, hey, come over here. I can save you through this window. And they go, no, no, I really want to use a different window. I'd rather use the one. No, I want to use the stair. Like just completely ignoring salvation. That the path that there was a way. So then you could argue, well, well, if that's the case, then how do you know for so sure that Christianity is the right one? And I think there's a lot of evidence for it. The first is that every other religion, every single one, is about how you can make yourself right with God. Christianity is the only one that says that that's impossible. God will come and make you right with him the only one every other one is about how you can work how you can how you can struggle how you can you know the, the interesting thing is, is if you just use a little bit of logic since every other one is about works and if you are a real christian you have saving faith that means that your life is lived differently then that means just by living as a christian even if it was wrong you would satisfy satisfy the requirements of every other religion anyway because you'd be living morally and rightly But so that's the first thing that I would say that shows that Christianity is different. But the most significant thing that demonstrates that Christianity was right is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one that ever rose from the dead. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Matter of fact, as a side note, Buddha said, I'm not the one, I'm looking for the one. But he didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Jesus is the only one that rose from the dead. And there is a significant amount of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we won't have time to go through that all today, but I, I would encourage you to look at the evidence for Jesus Christ and what he did. There's a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, Lee Strobel has a book called, uh, what's his? Uh, uh, Case for Christ. They're, they're, they're all amazing. They all have sections on the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection and why we should believe the disciples. The, the evidence is significant for the resurrection. And here's the thing, if God rose Jesus from the dead, he's validating everything that he ever said. And if he is who he says he is, then when he says he's the only way, he's the only way. So I think the question we should be asking instead of why can't there be more than one way, it's why is there even a way at all? We don't deserve it. We certainly haven't earned it. God loved us so much that he still made a way. And he said, listen, I made a way. It's, and it's not even difficult. You just simply have to trust. I'm so thankful that God loved us so much that he made a way. Because I can be honest when I look at my life and realize that I don't deserve it. There's no way I could do it on my own. The truth is, before I understood salvation, before I put my faith in Christ, I just had this, this over high-level overview of what Christianity was like, and I was treating it like every other religion, right? It was a list of things that I had to do. And you know what I wasn't good at? doing any of those things that I had made up that I needed to do. I failed at them over and over and over again. I realized that, that without Christ, I can't live morally. I can't live up to the standard that is set. Nobody can. So I'm so thankful that in spite of that, God still sent his son so that I could be made brand new and that I could be set free and that I could be saved. Amen. Amen. And then in verse 7, he goes on, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So Jesus continues on saying, listen, if you had known him, Jesus, right? If you had had known me, then you know the Father, right? And and remember, what is the point of what he's saying? He is the way to the Father. He is the, the connection point. And he says, listen, if you know me, then you knew the Father, it is by knowing Jesus that we have access to and can know the Father. By putting our trust in Jesus, we have access to the Father. As Joseph said earlier, the, the, no, as George was praying today during the prayer meeting, I think that the veil was torn. What was once closed off is now open. We have complete and direct access to the Father. And Jesus says, as a result... You do know him. You have seen him. And for all those who claim that Jesus never said that he was God, here's another instance. He says, if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. They had seen Jesus, therefore they had seen the Father. This, this is simple math here, folks. If they're the same, then God, Jesus is God, amen? Because they are one. And then John 14, 8, he says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. So surprise, surprise, they misunderstand (laughs) Jesus again. I I think this is, the the Gospel of John should have a subtitle, how Jesus was misunderstood. Because it's just over and over again. You see, Philip isn't understanding what Jesus said, so he's thinking to himself, you know what? okay, we're going to go through some stuff. It's already been bad now. It may not turn out how I thought, but if I can see the Father, then that'll be enough. It'll have been worth it. And sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but when I read the Bible, do you ever want to reach through and shake some people? It's like, oh, how do you not understand what Jesus is saying? But then I'm quickly reminded about how often I do the same. God's always quick to point that out to me see, so many times I have misunderstood what God was trying to say to me. Or so many times I've already decided what I want God to say to me. So I go through and, and, uh, and interpret what he has said through that lens. Like, I can make this fit. If I just tweak it and mold it a little bit, I can make what he says fit what I want. So the only thing I do now when I recognize it is I repent. Amen which is actually the same thing that these men do when they recognize that they've made the mistake as well. We're going to see as we go through this story, they all do come to repent and and become behemoth supporters of Christ. That's why we are actually have the opportunity to hear it today because these men no longer were thinking like this, but they got it. They repented of that misunderstanding, and then they went ahead, and and because of that, the gospel was shared to the whole world. So I'm quick to shut down those criticisms because the truth is, is that I have hindsight and they didn't. In verses nine through 11, it says, Jesus said to him, 'Have, "'Have I been with you so long "'and you still do not know me, Philip? "'Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, show us the Father?' Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You know, a lot of times Jesus shows compassion, and sometimes he just rebukes, and that's what he does here. He says, Philip, what are you saying to me? How are you not getting it? Philip, don't you get it? When you have seen me, you've already seen the Father. Why do you say, Show me the Father that I'll be enough? Philip, you've already seen the Father. When you see me, it's Him. You see, Philip and the disciples should have put together by now, after walking with Jesus for three years, that Jesus was God in the flesh, in human form. So he begins to wonder. He says, Listen, Philip, don't you understand? And he says, Do you not believe? He questions Philip's belief. Don't you believe, Philip, that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father? He says, don't you understand, Philip, that when the Father speaks, I speak, and when I speak, the Father is speaking? You see, Jesus is the complete revelation of God, the perfect revelation of God. That's why you've often heard me say, Jesus is perfect theology. What Jesus does is God's will. What Jesus says is God's words. One of the things, and if you've been here a while, you know, you've heard me say it, it drives me crazy. You know, God works a mysterious way. No, he doesn't. <laughs> He really doesn't. He's he's written us a word, so we don't have to think about that. Matter of fact, the mysteries that were, were there in the Old Testament have been cleared up in Jesus Christ, and we can know God's will because he lived it out. Jesus lived out God's will. So Jesus says, believe me. He says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at the very least... Believe on account of the works that I have done. You see, Jesus says either believe it because I say it, or if you don't want to believe it because I say it, you've, you've at least walked with me for several years. You've seen the works that I've done. These are all evidence that I am who I say that I am. At a minimum, just believe that. <coughs> oh, someone's about to have to preach, I think. <coughs> Hallelujah. Sorry, guys. <coughs> but at a minimum believe that because here's the thing you need to believe it because to know Jesus is to know God and if you don't believe these things you can't know God Jesus had made it clear previously in John chapter 10 verse 30 that I and the father are one you know this is one of the reasons another one uh, one of the reasons why the deity of Christ is so important You see, if Jesus isn't God, then you can't see and know the Father by seeing and knowing Jesus. That becomes a problem. It's why putting your faith in the correct Jesus is so important. And the reason I say that is there are many religions that purport to have faith in Jesus Christ, but they believe in a different Jesus than the one described in the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They don't believe, they just believe he was another prophet or he he was a man of God or, or some other a different thing. But they don't believe that he is God in the flesh. And that's a problem. Because yeah. that's a different Jesus. You need to have your faith in the right Jesus. And that's the one of the Bible. The one that was God come in the flesh. And then we'll end up here. In verses 12 through 14. It says truly, truly I say to you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus' final piece of encouragement that we're going to review today is quite a big one. This is a pretty amazing statement that Jesus is saying. First, he says that those who believe in him will do the works that he does. And I've seen some people try to limit the scope of what Jesus is talking about here. And, and they somehow, I was reading one commentary, oh, this is just in regards to evangelization. But it, it seems to me that if we're going to look at what's being said here, what's the last mention of works? It wasn't that far ago. It was like the last verse. He says, believe on the account of the works themselves. So these are the works that Jesus is talking about. And then he says, whoever has seen me, has seen am uh, sorry, click forward. There we go. He says, uh, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I don't know how you can separate the two. So we're talking about the works that Jesus did. Miracles up to and including raising people from the dead. He says "It will do them. And not only that, not only were those who believe do those works, he says, but greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Now, to be clear, when he says greater works here, he's not talking about somehow better, more spectacular works, right? It, it, greater is, 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 is in the case of volume here. I, I can't think of a miracle that's, that's, that's greater than raising someone from the dead, can you? Like, I don't even know what we could imagine that would be better than that. So he's not talking about uh, uh, greater in the sense of of more powerful or bigger, but in in the sense of more volume. And the reason I say this, he says this is because he's going to the Father. Well, Jesus is going to the Father and will no longer be doing works, but... um, Whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So he's talking about believers. Not each and every individual believer will do a greater amount of works in Jesus, but collectively over the, the history since Jesus, I can say that, that, that miracles have happened already greater than and in volume than Jesus has done. I've, I've, I've heard accounts of people actually being raised from the dead from people that I trust who were involved I've seen miracles happen. I've seen cancer cured. I've seen people healed. I heard a, 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 a first-hand account of a pastor that I trust who was in a, in a prayer meeting, a bunch of believers, and they began to worship. And their back molars actually turned to gold in their worship. It was just a miracle that God was just demonstrating his power and showing. And like I said, these are men of God that I trust, that I know these are first-hand accounts So the reality is, is that people who have put their trust in him have been doing miracles as he's done ever since Jesus went to be with the father. But there is a a qualification here that I think that we need to to truly understand. Because he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is another powerful statement. Then we can pray in the name of Jesus, and what we ask, it will be done. Once again, I think that uh, many people try to limit this as well. Maybe there's just some subset of things that we can ask in Jesus' name that will be done, but not everything. But I think we do need to define what does he mean by in his name? You see, first, while often we end our prayers in Jesus' name I pray, just saying so doesn't make it so. This isn't some magical phrase to somehow materialize what you want. And I, I fear that, that, like I said, many people who are praying in the name of Jesus aren't actually doing so. You see, to, this isn't some magical phrase that you can just tack on the end of a prayer to give it power To pray in his name is to, uh, to ask in his name is to pray in accordance with the purpose and purpose of Jesus Christ. John actually clarifies this a little bit later in, in John 5, 14 through 15. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. Almost the same thing that's going on, same writer, different book. But, he declares if it's in his will. You know, and, and, and that's the thing, is that when we're praying in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the authority of Jesus, and, and I think an easy way to, just, to, to, to understand how this works is, is think of a police officer. When a police officer goes out and he does something, he does it in the authority of the state that has given him power. But he can't just do anything in that authority. It has to be in alignment and in accordance with the, with the will of the state, if you will, with the laws of the state. And it's the same thing for us. You can't pray, Lord, I want to be married to my neighbor's wife in the name of Jesus and expect that to be answered because that is not in accordance to his will, Amen. So if that's the question, if that's the the reality, then praying in his will is in accordance to his purpose and uh, his his person and purpose. and, And we have to do it according to his will. How can we know that we're praying according to the will of Jesus, to the will of God? And the first thing is, is that we need to look to Jesus. What did Jesus do? What did he say? And what did he pray? We can see the will of God, the will of Jesus in the way that he lived his life. One of the, uh, we've been taking small sections of our messages and, and putting them online. And uh, uh, I don't forget the exact one, but basically I was describing, uh, oh, I think I was talking about how Jesus uh, uh, was distraught about going to the cross, you know, and, and actually suffering that wasn't something he wanted to do. And someone in the con- on the comments, and they said it more colorfully than I'm going to say, but they said something along the lines of, how could we know what Jesus thought? And I'm like, well you can read what he said (laughs) it just says it like we don't even have to guess that's the thing is you can read the word and begin to understand the will of god the will of jesus second look at the rest of the word of god jesus and the father are one their will is the same the scripture says that god is the same yesterday yesterday today and forever his will isn't changing so that's how you can check if it's according to the will of God. And then finally, the next thing is to renew your mind. By reading your word and spending your time in prayer, you're going to begin to think more and more like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understand the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know what the will of God is? Renew your mind. And then Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That means to walk the same as, to be in alignment with the Spirit. And if you will renew your mind and walk in step in the Spirit then naturally you won't be asking for things outside of the will of God because your mind then is in alignment with him. Turns out the things that he wants are the things that you want and you're going to pray accordingly, amen? When you're walking in alignment with God, the things that are contrary to God become the things that are contrary to you, amen? Amen, all right, we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. These things that Jesus said today to his 11 disciples because Judas had already taken off were there to encourage them. And church, I hope they encourage you today as well. Amen.